Yes, indeedy. Welcome to the Upful Life Podcast. I'm your host, B. Getz. And this is episode three. Welcome back. Very pleased and grateful to be back to offer a third episode. And again, the response has been wonderful, humbling, and empowering to the first two episodes. Uh, we're on iTunes now. We also have a home on Podbean. Just search Up Full Life Podcast. And you can find us in the traditional ways for podcast listening. And that was pretty awesome to get approved by iTunes. I don't really know, you know, how strict they are about this or that, but it just feels official and uh, looks official and sort of a little bit of mojo that comes with sending an iTunes link as opposed to, you know, something else. I personally don't use Apple products or have an iPhone, so I'm not too familiar with, you know, navigating around that sort of thing, but I jump on iTunes through PC and Android uh, laptop from time to time, so I'll check it out, but I was just stoked because I know most people get their podcasts on iTunes, and every podcast that I listen to is always like, leave us a review and rank us and rate us and this and that, and you know, I do that when I'm called to, when the programming is super dope, and I ask the same of people who listen to me, you know. Uh, if you like this uh, podcast and want to see it grow and reach more people, please rank, rate us, uh, leave comments, reviews, whatever. You can also hit me at bgets at upfullife.com. Um, and I certainly read everything that comes my way and constructive criticism, certainly uh, process that and hopefully make improvements as such. So I just want to say keep it coming. Uh, keep the support happening. Uh, thank you to everyone who has shared or posted. So many of my friends and artists and just people in the community have been on board with the Upful Life podcast. And you know, this is just my deep bow of gratitude. Since I last spoke to y'all, uh, I've been all over Northern California, uh, mostly working on a farm, but also, you know, catching some music and getting prepared for this sojourn that is before us. Uh, tomorrow we leave for New Orleans for the mega Live for Live music wedding that's taking place down there, and I have no doubt it's going to be a one of once in a lifetime and one of a kind event. Um, I usually only visit New Orleans during Jazz Fest or Carnival, um, but it'll be cool to be at least close to Halloween and even cooler to be in the company with so many friends and artists and musicians and just the best peeps. So uh, we're headed there tomorrow. I'm going to do a couple interviews in New Orleans that are super exciting. I cannot uh, wait to drop in with those folks, and you'll hear those shortly thereafter. Um we get, you know, Carl D. is my dude. Carl Denson's Time Universe is making their triumphant return to Tipitina's Uptown on Friday night. So that will be our, you know, welcome home, welcome to town, rager. And then we have the big wedding festivities all morning, afternoon, and night on Saturday. And then uh, we're heading to Tallahassee with my partner and her family. And, and then it's Halloween. I know you heard me talk about Halloween last episode, so... Uh, 
just will stress that this is my favorite festival of the year and you know my vocation allows me to go to many festivals and if I could only hit one annually it would be Hula and that's even before they booked Jamiroquai. Um, it's just lining up to be a, an experience of epic and you know epic proportions. And so we're headed to Halloween from New Orleans and then we'll be back here in the Bay Area at the end of the month. So that's what's in front of me. Uh, and as for the podcast, we'll stay on the bi-weekly schedule. Um, today's episode features an enigmatic persona, uh, drummer Scotty Zwang, most recently of the fantastic new project Ghostlight, which was headed up by Tom Hamilton uh, a little over a year ago and has just really hit the ground running. I got my first dose of Ghostlight live at High Sierra this summer in July and was uh, predictably blown away. I mean, I'd heard the hype and the fuss and knew some of the cats involved, but even still, absolutely amazing. Uh, but Scotty's just been a personality that's just popped up in all kinds of places through the years. I know him initially through uh, the Blockley community. If you recall last episode with Chris Perella, we talked a lot of Blockley. Well, Scotty played a lot of Blockley gigs with a variety of projects, his Sonic Spank and uh, others. And and then he joined Greenhouse Lounge and and he left Greenhouse Lounge for Dopapod and then he was uh, let go from Dopapod. So there's just a lot of uh, ins and outs to his career before he landed at this amazing opportunity with a ghost light. And since my podcast, uh, I, I try to develop a theme of human resiliency and inspiration uh, in some capacity, obviously with Mikey Karuba in episode one and the sobriety and the path chosen with Chris Perella in episode two, the failure of his first endeavor, the Blockley and his, uh, you know, dusting himself off and trying again, uh, copyright Aaliyah, uh, and how he uh, persevered and, and rose from the ashes like a phoenix to the Ardmore Music Hall. So those were two podcasts that uh, really kind of developed the theme of human resiliency and inspiration. And with Scotty, he's a working musician. Um, he has definitely tried and failed and tried and succeeded and thought he succeeded, but not. And I mean, he's just really um, experienced so many levels of the working musician's journey um, that I thought he would be just a really cool guy to chat up and also just show some love to the Ghostlight Project. Scotty actually really takes us on a tour of his whole career, really back to like bands in his youth, like alternative rock bands and, and really uh, talks at length about, you know, how he joined Greenhouse, why he left, how he joined Dopapod, and the circumstances around his dismissal. Um, he does it with class and dignity. He does not roast any parties or really anybody uh, negatively, cast anyone negatively uh, at all. He's uh, with handles the whole thing with a lot of respect and dignity, and I didn't expected nothing less, but it was pretty awesome to just hear him lay it all out. And then towards the end... Uh, uh, we dip into some of his more personal choices of late. Not total sobriety, but he's really reeled in uh, his partying and sort of that side of rock and roll and talks about that, talks about his choosing to go vegan. And at that point in time, my recorder ran out of batteries and I fucked up. 
and uh, that's on me. He's really starting to get juicy about the vegan stuff, and then it it stops recording. So I'm still a beginner at this, and I will own that and place that on me. The out, the interview is still lengthy. Um, it's still well over an hour, but uh, the last couple minutes we missed. And uh, maybe next time we'll follow up on him uh, with another interview down the road and see how the vegan thing is still going in his life. But this is a really uh, just a wonderful conversation uh, and story arc of a drummer's career and just a cool ass dude. Um, yeah, Scotty's Wang coming right up. And at the conclusion of uh, the Scotty's Wang interview, uh, since it's so long, I'm not going to have another segment per se, but since Jamiroquai is uh, wrapping up their five U.S. dates at Swanee Halloween, and it's probably the most anticipated show of my life, um, I would say that uh, I couldn't resist the urge to do the Vibe Junkie Jam of the Week and uh, do a Jamiroquai song for that to sort of just get the people hype for what's to come at Swanee Halloween and just sort of not a nod to the to the band and to JK as a showing of gratitude for their return after 13 long and agonizing years. Well, there you have it. Episode 3 coming right up, Scotty's Wang, and then Vibe Junkie Jam of the Week. I'm going to lead in with a lengthier intro for Scotty, just because Ghostlight is so good, and I wanted an opportunity to play some of their music, so I'm going to play a few minutes of Ghostlight, and then you'll hear Scotty and I chat it up. You are listening to episode three of the Up Full Life podcast, and I'm your host, B. Getz. about music, culture, and its surrounds, 
and I'm lucky uh, here in Philadelphia to be sitting with Scotty Zwang of Ghost Light, uh, drummer uh, among so many other projects. So thank you for showing up. Thank you for having me. It's a pleasure. Right on. So uh, yeah, we just want to get uh, a little familiar with uh, you, know, you and uh, your background maybe and how you came into uh, the music culture. Uh, so you said you're from near uh, New York. Yeah, I'm from uh, Comac, New York. It's about a, an hour outside of Manhattan on Long Island. Right on. And what, when did you start playing the drums? I, I thought for my eighth birthday, my parents got me a drum set, but it might have been my ninth, but somewhere around that time period of my life, my parents decided that they would be awesome and buy me a drum set <laughs> so. right on that's cool folks for sure and what what were you kind of getting into at that time in terms of music like what were you rocking out to and like wanting to be the drummer of what bands I feel like I was just really starting to discover music for myself at, at a certain in early stages of life and it's different for everyone I feel like they listen to a lot of what their parents listen to and then whether it's radio or whatever it might be uh, people start to discover their own things and for me it was just the alternative rock of that early 90s time period and one of the first big influences to get me to like sit down on the drum set and like learn a song was well a couple things one's kind of embarrassing but it was around the time that movie that thing you do came out yeah i know the film dude with the shades yeah and i wanted to be shades it was actually the first performance i ever did was playing that song at like a um like elementary school or intermediate school kind of uh talent show situation but really the first thing was uh sublime uh self-titled album um and yeah really just like that i guess southern california style of uh punk rock reggae kind of stuff right on yeah Okay, yeah, I've seen you uh, in your social media activity talk a lot about uh, the Foo Fighters and Dave Grohl. Yeah. Played a major role. Yeah, I would say uh, starting with Nirvana and then going into the the Foo Fighters was definitely uh, really big for me. Um, And then just as an inspiration of following his career and really not having any limitations and just, you know, He's one, known as one of the greatest drummers in the world, but it, it didn't stop him from becoming a songwriter and singer, guitarist, frontman of arguably the largest, biggest rock band in the world. Yeah, so. definitely of their generation. Yeah, for sure. Do me a favor, just rotate your chair towards me a little sure. bit. Sure. Thanks, bud. Appreciate it. So, uh, were you playing drums in bands in high school and stuff? Yeah, um, I started my first band probably around 13 14 years old and my high school was really great about music not only having a very big music program throughout the school but also like extracurricular activities around music and like talent kind of shows or at least like entertainment kind of uh, ensembles throughout the day to I guess take kids away from just regular school activities was it a Public high school? Yeah, public high school. They just had a yeah. lot of... Uh, Comac like, High School. They uh, Right when I entered, they wanted to try and keep uh, students in school in that they had like uh, 
what was called Bosi's Cultural Arts, but like a almost like trade school kind of thing for you know whether people wanted to get into automotive or music. Normally, you'd have to leave school for half the day and do that, and then go do your um, main courses: math, science, social studies, English. Um, but they decided to bring a lot of music into the school and you know we had wonderful teachers and I was fortunate enough by 10th grade that I took like four music classes throughout the day and did you know jazz improv and music theory and and all that kind of stuff that usually people aren't able to really get into until like college they were trying to implement that into their own uh, schedule throughout the day. I mean that's pretty awesome and when you think about it that's not the norm for most public high schools if you will like that level of you know, encouraged music curriculum. I mean, they have lots of music programs, but for you to be able to fill your day like that. Yeah. And now that seems like that's a lot of what gets cut from school budgets. Yeah, unfortunately. Um, so if anything, this is a, a vote for keeping that around because here you are all these years later, a working musician. And I'm sure that those experiences at that fertile age really, you know, empowered you to, to take this path and play music as, as sort of your vocation, if you will. Yeah, had I not been exposed to performing on stage at such an early age, um, I don't know where I would be. Um, <laughs> it, it's kind of hard to tell because there's, uh, it's definitely intimidating and uh, nerve-wracking to you know have to get in front of you know a dozen people at first or a hundred people or you know even at a certain point a thousand plus people. It can be. You know, as exciting as it can be, it's definitely uh, gets the nerves going a little bit. You know, what was your first quote big gig of any kind? My first big gig, um, I mean, when I was an early teenager, I got to do a lot of pit band stuff and play musical theater role. Um, and I guess like my first paying gig when I was about thirteen or fourteen years old was doing something like that, and that was kind of a cool big deal for me like you could it wasn't a lot of money but like you can make money doing this this is right. great um and I just loved playing so any excuse to get to play more than I normally could was great and then on top of that if someone wanted to pay me like awesome um but I guess um my senior year of high school um freshman year of college if you will although I didn't really do much college um I joined a band called Code Anchor, um, which is like my local hero kind of band of older musicians, my brother's age, like four or five years older. And I just loved their music. And they were doing a like 80s kind of night thing and they wanted someone to play percussion. And I'm not really a percussionist, but um, I got to start playing music in bars and being in places I really wasn't supposed to be in. Yeah, and it's as it, rock and roll as it gets. Yeah, and it was exciting, and you know, just having hundreds of people in a bar, you know, getting rowdy, drinking beer and whatnot, listening to this music and dancing and having fun was great. And about a year or so after that, um, I was subbing for their drummer, and I loved it, and I hated community college. The plan was to go to community college, and I had a rough high school not responsible partying situation. <laughs> My parents weren't about to send me off to college. 
but all I really wanted to do was go to Berklee College of Music. And they're like, well, prove yourself at home first. And if you're doing it and you can show that you're taking it seriously and you're a good student, you can go to Berklee. And within a year, I was playing in this band and was like, I, I just want to do this. Right. And ultimately, I can go to college and get a great education and possibly great opportunities, especially through a college like Berkeley. Um, but at the end of the day, I would still have to go and perform and get my name out there. And I figure if I have this opportunity at 19 years old, I might as well take it. And uh, I joined the band full time and started touring around the country and doing shows, nothing too crazy. But uh, again, to play, you know, all over the East Coast mostly. And it was a amazing experience. I bet. Were you guys like headlining rooms? Uh, depending on where. Okay. Mostly in like the New York surrounding area. We would headline and do stuff. We won a lot of competitions in the Long Island and New York City kind of area where, you know, hundreds of bands would enter. And we were lucky enough to come out on top. And... We actually got to work with some cool people through the process, including um, Kurt Yano, who was a producer uh, in the 80s. He did a lot with, and 90s, he did with Mariah Carey and Public Enemy. Wow. And then in like the late 90s, I guess really early 2000s, he started working with Lettuce and Soul Live. And that's when I first got to meet some of the Soul Live guys. And, dug a little deeper into you know Adam Deitch's drumming and um, it was just a great experience to have someone you know be in a professional studio and kind of show you the ropes I definitely got yelled at for <laughs> not being as good as I probably should have especially with like I didn't know anything about tuning drums or anything and I went into the studio to record and he was pretty much like you should let your drum teacher know that like he did a terrible job not oh, wow. telling you like how to tune drums like how are you going to play drums if your instrument sounds bad and good point. it was a great point and it really like made me realize that I should probably learn how to do that which ultimately at one point became my career was just being a, a, tech. a tech for people so yeah when I want to move into that world soon enough but um, that's interesting that, that your first major experience of Code Anchor. Yeah. You guys recently uh, released something I saw. Yeah, we've, uh, we broke up uh, in 2009 and kind of just went our separate ways. Everyone wanted to do their thing. I guess it was kind of led by our guitarist. We'd always talked about going out west and like the, which was always a dream of mine. They're like, I'm going to move to LA and be a famous drummer and <laughs> some rock band, you know, that pipe dream and um that's like the beginning of the steve Vai video yeah says that, right? exactly <laughs> and uh he finally was like i'm doing this and if you guys want to join great but if not i need to do this and everyone was kind of like eh, i don't know and i was in this kind of punk rock alternative band uh but i was a jam band kid i mean i found out that he was leaving and the band was broken up while i was at rothbury Oh, perfect. Oh, nine, sure. Yeah, oh, nine. Okay. So, and it kind of, that summer changed my life. I, uh, I started meeting all of these musicians and becoming friends with drummers of, you know, all different kinds, whether it was Chris Myers from Umphreys McGee and 
um, Alan O'Quinn from the Disco Biscuits and Adam Deitch and I was uh, drum teching for the Dillinger Escape Plan and going to Bonnaroo and getting to experience all these things where it was kind of like I want to do more of this right. and you so know it's take, a blessing in disguise basically yeah it okay. opened up all of the doors where you know that summer the band broke up and I was at Camp Bisco with KJ Saka who was another drummer East, I was East, yeah drummer. incredible and, and an amazing mentor to have wow I never knew that and uh he was sitting in with the biscuits and invited me to the uh I don't know if you remember the the rage stage late night things they would do at Camp Bisco in like the VIP RV section and uh KJ was kind of like hey let's bring your drum set over there uh, Johnny Rab and Clay Parnell and Biodiesel invited us to go and do this like super jam thing and that's where I met Ian McGuire and he had just gotten Sonic Spank together and they didn't have a drummer and they were about to audition drummers and I just happened to be the first guy to get the job I, I yeah. think at least that's, and that's they the and they like it stayed yeah and I started coming to Philly a lot and ultimately moved to Philly, but I did that thing for, you know, two or three years, and it was a like the greatest experience ever because Code Anchor was great with getting a taste of what traveling would be like, but we didn't really tour. Right. Whereas Sonic Spank, like we toured, you know, right. a lot of it was like the weekend warrior thing, as people refer to it, just doing like Thursday, Friday, Saturday, and yeah. coming back home. But we definitely had these experiences to like go on tour for two or three weeks with the egg and um open up for brothers past or just i'm forgetting but like really great experiences and knowing what it was like to actually travel around like at least the eastern part of the united states but getting to experience random places and cool clubs in the midwest and uh traveling further distances around pretty much anything east of the Mississippi was kind of like fair game for that band. Right on. Um, did you guys um, put out any records? Yeah, we we did a couple EPs and one full studio release and we did a, a live album from uh, New Earth Music Hall at the, in, uh, in Athens, Athens, Georgia, Georgia right. which was like our stop on the way to or a music festival, which at the point was at that point was in like central Florida yeah. kind of area, um, and it was just a wonderful experience. But it started to just be rough on like the body it's and hard. mind. That was when you got in, on my personal radar. You were in Sonic's Bank. Oh, cool! Yeah, and I always wondered, like, what would you describe that band's like genre or style? <laughs> Uh, Jed at the Blockly, we'll get to the Blockly soon, but Jed was this huge fan of you guys and was always like, blowing the Sonic's Bank horn. So. <laughs> well, the Blockly was always great. It was kind of like our, our stomping grounds. Um, and, I mean, it was described in an embarrassing kind of way as sextronica <laughs> because it was definitely electronic or electronica genre of music that blended kind of different dance vibes um but in the beginning years especially a lot of the titles of the tracks were like um crygasm 
and Bukaki Maki and like these weird like just childish I, I'm blaming Ian on okay. for that one but it was like they had this concept they had already worked on this music before I even and entered Spank right there and yeah the, you know. it was just like a fun thing I think it was just like the um, why people get into music in the first place it's like sus- suspended youth but um but like the immature <laughs> yeah such, right? it was definitely continuing right. the fart joke aspect of of being a kid and you know um, you mentioned Bisco yeah so um, that's sort of like the world that I would say I know you from the sort of like the Bisco uh, diaspora not so much even as a musician just as a dude you know? yeah so what uh, being that we're in Philly uh, it's appropriate like, yeah. what, how did you was, did you find fish first were you a Bisco kid first like how did you sort of like uh, join the uh, jam band so, world. So mine is kind of interesting. Going back to like discovering music, one of my earliest memories of music and finding out about stuff is two situations involving my father. Um, one was driving in the car. He would always have on like Motown music and then like Steely Dan mm. and music of the 80s, like 38 special and like random stuff like that and then um my dad got really big on like exercise in the early 90s he kind of like needed it he had a bad back and he's a physician himself and a doctor was like if you don't start exercising and taking care of your body like your back's just gonna get worse and one of the albums that he would listen to was like he had just found out about fish because he was reading a guitar player magazine and they were talking about trey this was like maybe 93 or 94 definitely by 95 because because it was picture nectar rift and hoist were the three albums that he got so it had to have been 95 because hoist was out um and i remember looking at the hoist booklet um back when people still bought cds and just seeing like these weird characters and like the hoist art is actually really cool and yeah quirky obscure exactly between the cover of like the horse which i think is like an amy's farm like one of her horses of like early fish um that's a nugget yeah i I did not know that yeah so like amy's farm the that horse being hoisted that photo is from a, a horse on the farm since it was a working farm at least that's the story i i've been told um, but like them in like these weird old time bathing yes, suits with the weights and like I was like what is this I actually showed her the Rolling Stone cover of that they, you know they were on Rolling Stone cover once when yeah. the first came out and it's they're dressed as such yeah <laughs> I still have that magazine and the guitar player you're talking about and then uh, <laughs> wait, that's awesome by the way and then it kind of just stuck like even now like I hear the studio recording of Sample in a Jar and when it gets the, the guitar solo it like it like pierces that same yeah. spot in my heart of like this is the greatest thing yeah. ever. So fish was first. So fish was first, and, and then when did, uh, you sort of the biscuits the was thing. my f- I got into the New Deal first ah, great in band. like two thousand or two thousand one. They were a revolution. Oh, so good, especially in that time period. They were For really sure. groundbreaking. Yeah. Um, and my friends in two thousand two were like, we're gonna go to see the New Deal on New Year's. They're like playing with this band, the Disco Biscuits. And 
I that was like how I first heard of the biscuits. And then shortly after that, they came out with like the transfusion radio mm-hmm. discs. Um, or I heard something from like that New Year's run. Like I think it was crickets. And I was like, what is this? It's just like, I feel like they're just playing the same thing for like, you know, I didn't get it yet, right. essentially is what it was. Um, and it took me years. And I went to Camp Bisco in 2005. Not a fan. Not a fan. Not a fan. I went, no, no, no. This was before any of the teching stuff. Okay. I didn't know anyone. I didn't, I wasn't even in uh, Code so, Anchor yet. Or maybe I had just okay. joined Code Anchor. Um, I went because the New Deal was playing. And I just found out about uh, the Benevento Russo duo. And there was like... And Umphreys McGee. Actually, okay. Umphreys was one of those bands that I heard and immediately loved, whereas a lot of the people I knew heard it and were like, I don't I don't really care for this too much. And especially my friends that were into the Biscuits. There's like a love-hate thing between the two of them. Um, but anyway, I went in 2005, did not care, but kind of had fun at the festival and it was cheap enough and close enough I was like, I'll go the next it was year. Mariahville back then. It was uh, not Mariahville. It was Skytop Mountain, like just outside okay. of Ithaca. Gotcha. Um, and then I decided to go the next year, and it was at Hunter Mountain. Right. And all my friends that were really into the biscuits all went to uh, New Paltz and were living in New Paltz after after graduating, or they all kind of just stayed. Um, so we went to the festival and, and Alan had just joined the band and it like, it hit me then. I mean, I don't know if it was Alan's drumming or I finally started to understand what this band was doing and why they were kind of known for this, you know, mashup of songs and starting the end of the song first and coming back to it concept or, or maybe it was the party aspect of it that appealed to me. But it just, it kind of sunk in. And I continued. I went to Camp Esco every year from 2005 to about 2013, uh, where once 2007, they stayed at Mariahville for a while. Um, And then uh, touring and doing stuff kind of got in the way where it was like, I I wasn't going to be able to do it anymore. But I went to like nine Camp Esco's in a row. And it was just something that I loved. And then when I joined Sonics Bank in two th- beginning of 2010, it was just like that Philly electronic thing where like the biscuits and we actually took over Lotus's uh, house. Like they lived in a house just outside of Philly, I guess technically still Philly in like the Glenside area near the Keswick Theater. Uh, we took over their lease. It was their house that, like, they lived in the first 10 years of their career. It had, like, all this Lotus stuff around the house. <laughs> it was, it was kind of cool. But there was just, like, a close connection yeah. to the Philly electronic music scene and, and Brothers Past and just, like, something about yeah. Philly, really. Like, it kind of created the Jamtronica scene. Yeah, that absolutely. Made, you know, well, at least one of them. You yeah. Know I mean, one of the, one of the pockets. Yeah, of Maybe of the most, you know, celebrated, if you will. Yeah. It's funny because, you know, I'm from Philly area and spent a lot of time in Philly, not plugged into the Bisco thing at all. Yeah. Mad respect. Just like never was my thing. But I have to acknowledge the family tree and the, like I said, the diaspora 
all the artists that were sort of like, you know, came from the fertile environment of what the biscuits were building here. Yeah. Um, and so much of that has blossomed into this incredible shit all these years later. Such as, like, you, you would wonder, I remember when I would see, like, uh, Joe Russo playing with, you know, cookie dusters. or Oh, yeah, all the side and, project right. things. And yeah. So here's a guy that I pledge my allegiance to Joe Russo, anything he touched. Yeah. And, you know, so he's going to play with the cookie dusters. It's like, okay, you know, and there was sort of like a wall came down. And I just started to observe that world. Yeah. Um, and I wanted to know, because obviously we're going to get to Ghostlight, but had you connected with Tommy back then in, like, that, you know, the that era when we talk about like Johnny Rabb and Brothers Pass and Clay and I mean that's when I found out about Tommy was yeah back then I mean I didn't know him personally I still don't but uh, that's when he got on my radar so were you so I first found out about Tommy through Brothers Past um, you know my bandmates in Sonic Spank were kind of close with especially like Clay being that you know Ian and Clay were doing a lot of music together and at one point Clay was doing you know, was like almost like our our first bassist of, of Sonic Spank and would like sit in with us a lot. Um, and I guess I met Tommy in like 2011. I When I first heard Brothers Past, I didn't, it was another one of the situations I didn't really get it. It wasn't for me. It's like now knowing and playing and diving deeper into it, it's like I have so much respect for, you know, the music those guys made and more specifically with my connection of like Tommy's writing style and everything um, you know it kind of it finally hooked into me but I had also seen him with Electron and just knowing that he was like in a way like he's kind of like the fifth member of the Disco Biscuits yeah. I don't know if that's fair to say or if anyone's going to be mad at me for saying that but he certainly was in some ways and, uh, and he actually sat in with Sonic Spank we were doing like a going away party for a friend uh, in Baltimore and American Babies were playing at like the Hard Rock Cafe or, or something and he came down and, and sat in and so that's kind of when I first met him and I, okay. I think it was around 2011 and I had known Clay um, so maybe that's kind of where Tommy and I like our relationship okay. first kind of started but it wasn't until like really a little later and through like the Disco Biscuits that I became friendly with him um, and then our musical relationship didn't kind of really start until like a couple of years ago or maybe not even it feels like a couple yeah. of years ago but it's really only been a year like Interesting. I did some American Baby shows last summer yeah. and then that was probably the reconnect like where he's he played with you and he was like probably I mentioned it to him. I was like, oh, you did the Sonic Spank thing. He was like, I did? Like, I don't even think he really remembered, but, like, there's so many situations that I'm sure... You sat in with the Biscuits at one point, did you not? A couple times. Okay, how did Um, We'll move on past the Biscuits, but I want to hear just briefly how that came to be. uh, Dobapod was doing a couple nights with them at uh, Electric Factory, and I had... It was, like, right around my 100th Disco Biscuit show. And... I, some gag, some joke, right? Wasn't there some... Alan and I have this running joke. It's still kind of a thing where, like, that was the thing is, like, he he kind of mentioned it to his bandmates, but there wasn't, like, a this song exact moment. It was kind of, like, standby. And he just kind of invited me up. And we did the switch on one, and we take about two bars. It's, like, a bar of him 
standing up and switching over and a bar of me sitting down and then we're in it and the band didn't even know it happened oh, that's incredible like it took it was like two or three minutes in like brownstein notice and a couple minutes after that magner and it took like barber like seven minutes to even <laughs> know that i was on stage that's cool. um and then it happened again at great north uh music festival it was like shortly after i uh departed from dopapod and alan was like yeah come come on up and sit in and it was kind of a similar situation yeah. where like i i like to know that the band is known that or knows that i'm going to be coming up just because i don't want to like piss anyone up or overstep my boundary but like there's no like plan or anything talked about like, you're going to sit on in on the jam of tricycle or whatever you know um it just kind of happens and we kind of like the fact that like no one's gonna know this happens and alan goes to the front of house to watch and even the sound guy is like what <laughs> what are you doing here how'd this happen what's going on right now like because i guess we've gotten pretty good at doing the That's switch awesome. where like people don't know that it happened right. which is cool the yeah the band if the band doesn't know that's really cool if the fans don't know you know it's also pretty cool yeah. if no one can notice as much as it, it would be you know it's nice of like the introduction of this yeah. switch is happening especially when you like really uh, respect and love this band and have dedicated so much of your life it, it's cool but yeah. but at the same time there's something cooler about like no one knows what's going on or that it's even happening so um, yeah that's pretty much that <laughs> right on well yeah uh, we briefly kind of touched on it for a second about the block theme we've been talking about Philly a lot but that was sort of uh, where I personally was able to really take a look at what not just the biscuits but definitely the biscuits has built here as a community as sort of like a way of life and a music scene and a social network and so forth um, and I felt like home base for that for a few years was the block league yeah uh, Chris you know is an amazing guy and he, he was nice enough to bring me in when I moved back to Philly for a couple of years when my dad was sick and that's how I ended up there and sort of plugged into the scene where again I found out about what you were up to with so many cool artists and stuff what are some uh, of your, you know, treasured or funny recollections from the Black There were really a lot, and if I'm to be honest, Does one stick out. I definitely, I mean, there's definitely a bunch. I mean, it was always fun, especially with, like, what you were saying and what the, I guess, the biscuits have kind of created in this scene, especially with like the electronic jamtronic kind of situation in, in Philly um, there were just so many shows and situations and I would play there a lot with Sonic Spank and I remember one particular situation I don't remember even what the show was I don't even know if I was actually playing that night but just like they had this like really old trombone backstage and I remember Clay was just like horribly playing but like just like playing this trombone for a, a long time too um and just everyone hysterically laughing and just having that like family dynamic like everyone was really close and um yeah it's kind of hard to describe but there was just a lot of love in that Certainly. in that place whether you were you know part of the 
block the organization crew or you were the band playing there or you know the audience and spectators there like there was like it kind of like weaved together of like who's who's doing what everyone kind of felt equally responsible for the experience that was going on do you feel like in some ways it's alive and well at, at Chris's new place at Ardmore oh totally yeah although like Ardmore is off the beaten path just yeah just outside of Philadelphia it definitely still holds all of the Philadelphia music scene like at the heart of it all yeah um and it's just like really proud of him and that entire team to have such a successful music venue I mean not that the Blockley wasn't either but it kind of black and white numbers wise it wasn't yeah it needed to be and that's why it was no more yeah I mean that's no secret but you're right. It was so much more than were they making money. You know? Yeah. Whereas and now they're, it's they're like making money. they're well, they're making money and yeah. they're doing good, great things for the music Fantastic. community. You know, actually, Not a, full disclosure: Chris is coming on the pod next. Oh, Sunday. that is that is great. So. Um, and just you know, seeing everyone maturing. Not only like owning and having a new successful venue, yeah. but getting married or having children yeah. or all these things that come with adulthood that are you know, exciting. Yeah. Or you might look at it and be like, holy shit, what's, everyone's growing up, what's happening? But yeah. like, it's definitely part of life and it's very exciting. Yeah, it certainly is. So I wanted to touch on uh, something I brought, told you on the way up. I don't want to stay too much in the history because I want to talk about now a yeah. little bit, but uh, just the both sides of the coin as, as a drummer. Um, you were playing with a band that I was a big fan of called Greenhouse Lounge, electronic band out of Florida. And I happened to be living in Florida mm-hmm. and uh, was kind of, you know, had moved back and you had joined the band down there and you guys came up, as a matter of fact, played the Blockley, as I recall. Um, maybe you weren't on that game, but I don't want to digress. I want to talk okay. about uh, basically, uh, you know, playing in a band and, and choosing to leave that band for another band, which in this case was Dobobot. Yes. Um, how do you evaluate a situation like that when you're in a working band that's not really where it needs to be in terms of how, how are you making money, right? Yeah. Because was not making it, and that's understood. Yeah, I mean... And a successful band comes along and says, hey, what's up? Like, how, how does somebody navigate that? So it's kind of a weird situation. Like, even just to very quickly go back, it was like, I had Sonic Spank, and the partying aspect was starting to become, like, this isn't fun anymore, and I want to take this seriously, and I want to make a living at this. Um... And this, I feel like, is just, it's just not happening the way I feel like it, it should be. And there was kind of, like, a dark disbanding where, like, I think my bandmates understood why I was leaving, but I'm sure they weren't happy about it. And I had reached out to our old manager, uh, another Philly guy, uh, promoter Justin Berger at Death Waltz. Sure. And I was like, hey, I can't do this anymore, and I need a new band. Like, I want to go to the next level and I want to like, I want to really take this seriously. And he was like, "Well, I'm about to start working with this band from Florida, Greenhouse Lounge, and they're actually looking for a drummer." And I just made a video quickly, or a couple videos. I had them send me over some songs, and I didn't have any video editing skills, but I just got a GoPro, and I took video of me playing drums to one of their songs with like the terrible audio of the of the GoPro 
and I went on to iMovie and I took their song and I overlapped it and it took me a minute but I kind of found the white wavelengths and spliced it together and I posted it on YouTube so that they could see it easily and maybe I made it private but like I posted it on YouTube and they loved it and that was my audition and I got into it and it was so much fun but I lived in New York right and I was flying back and forth to Jacksonville, which was also very exciting, but... Expensive. It becomes expensive, and they were great and were totally supportive of the fact that, like, we're budgeting the fact that, like, before any of us make money, your flight is going to come out of that. So it was like, oh, perfect. This is great. Um, but the partying aspect was once again like it was just it was taking a toll on me I was getting closer to being 30 and not that like you're or late 20s really <laughs> and and not that that's old but like your body starts to change we and know. not be, yeah and <laughs> I and there was some like feuds here and there nothing serious and I still talk with and love yeah. those guys um, but the band kind of wanted to dive deeper into the electronic scene and, um, and I was all about like the fusion of we're a, a live band that does something electronic, even if we have a computer on stage, not relying on pre but I don't, yeah, I'm not, I didn't want to like dive deeper into electronic music right. and especially the scene at that point, like yeah. there's a dark, like bath salts were starting <laughs> to be a thing. Sure. And, um, I was not sure what to think about this experience and I went to electric zoo that weekend to you know I, I, through years of touring I was fortunate in like kind of the early stages of Big Gigantic kind of blowing up touring with them with Sonic Spank um, and doing like sold out club dates around the Northeast and I went to go see them and catch up with them as well as like just see what was going on with the scene and my, my favorite production group, uh, this drum and bass trio, uh, Noisia, um, out of like the Netherlands yeah, area. Incredible. I played Symbiosis a couple years ago. I like, I had to see them because yeah. I love everything they do and their sense of soundscapes and High design are like, yeah. yeah, they're like the best as far as I view it and consider them to be the greatest at what they do. So I went there and I like you heard that like these like there was a like poor eighteen year old girl who got like raped and two, you know, teenage or early twenty year old kids that like died from a drug overdose. And I was like, I don't wanna I don't wanna dive deeper into this. I wanna get away from this. Right. And my That's always what's turned me off about the quote EDM world in yeah. general is that sort of I love the acceptance and the idea of being yourself and being creative and being your own person and every, and you know everything that goes with that and it's what I love about the jam band scene too just the community aspect of it as well as the music um, but I didn't like that at all and I definitely didn't want to get deeper into it and I was in the open field between all the stages and ran into like my first real manager Jay Rogovin um, who you might know Mr. with Bugsley. yeah Mr. Bugsley yeah, of and course. you know C three squad yeah exactly yeah. and he was looking at his phone and I was waving across the field like an idiot 
Um, and he was reading a text that said, hey, do you know any drummers? Oh, Dopapod's looking for a drummer. Right. And I was waving at him right. like an idiot. And he looked up, and there I was. <laughs> Yeah. And it was very symbiotic, or just like um, serendipitous. Yeah, serendipitous. That's oh, the word. I'm, symbiotic too. That's the that's the word I was looking for, though. And I was, uh, it just happened. Like I wanted right. to kind of get out of this band and situation, or at least I wasn't sure what I wanted to do with it. But I knew I wanted to like something take, different. Yeah, and take it once again Next up another level. level. And they this were on a couple levels. Yeah, and they were on my radar as one of those bands. Like, I really dig what they're doing, and I have a feeling they are gonna blow up. And I just happened. It started off as a, I was just asked to sub. You know, like it's kind of known right. now that you know Neil uh, Fro, their their drummer, um, and even though they're on hiatus, their current drummer, um, he needed a break. Right. And so I was asked to do the rest of their fall tour that's right. all it was and within a couple weeks of being on the road with them they i kind of stumbled into like an awkward green room vibe and the kind of vibe where you're like i feel like everyone's talking about me and they were talking about keeping me full-time and it kind of just came out right. maybe it was um a bit premature even because I mean ultimately he came back he came back in the band so it kind of makes sense that they had these kind of weird feelings about it but, but in the moment they don't know if it's a break if it's forever I mean look what happened with Panic yeah you know so you don't know and you and you got gigs and you, you got to play music you have a job to do you're right. a working musician right. exactly. and you've got bills to pay and on top of the fact that like you know I hate to make it about money as much as that's just a reality of growing up and being an adult like you've got bills to pay yeah. and if you can do that through something that you absolutely love you had all the signs pointing towards you yeah the music the partying the finances it was like hey here's an opportunity and you depart late so on the, just to give you the perspective like um, I'm close to the guys from Greenhouse so yeah. I know the politics of what was going on in that band and also how you know things went when they were on the road yeah and I also you know was bummed when I got the news you were leaving because I thought you were would in the end have been really good for them mm -hmm. but you know that that band ran its course and is no more so obviously you made the right choice for you and I just wanted to ask you um, you know how you navigated that because I've always been curious because you know my friendship with Dave and Zach and, and knowing you a little bit but never really you know I remember running into you at Sonic Bloom you were with Dopapod out in Colorado yes and we briefly talked it was the first time I'd seen you since that whole thing happened and you know it's just like just just seeing you go on stage and playing to that crowd at Sonic Bloom any questions I might have had of why you did it were answered without you having to say a word yeah you know that said uh, you know that's something that goes on out there in the world where quitting a band joining a new band and then in the end, like I said, both sides of the coin. Uh, eventually, Fro came back. So, how did how did you navigate that? Um, as far as the like the news of hey, we're bringing back Fro, which was it out of left field? It for me, it was out of left field. There were a lot of signs that there was like something going on in Dopapod camp, 
and for a while I was always kind of like, hey, is everyone, I still kind of do this, like, is everyone happy? Like, is there something I could be doing differently? Like, I'm not going to change who I am, but I want to better myself and, you know, make everyone happy as well as, you know, I want to make myself happy. And if we're all happy together in this thing, that's what's going to make me most happy. And that's what's going to make the band evolve and flourish to something bigger and better. So I'd always kind of been like, because I'm used to being the new guy. Code Anchor is the new guy. And Sonic Spank on some level and... Pretty much, I was the new guy. Greenhouse Land. Like, every band I've ever been in, I'm always the new guy. And there's some level of, like, this isn't really my band. And I I understand why. But it's a weird feeling to have. And I always kind of wanted to start my own band. But I have these great opportunities. You don't want to walk away from something that's good for you and going to help your career. Um, So it was kind of out of left field. Um... You know, I How did you find out, specifically? There was a meeting. I kind of thought that maybe the band was going to take a break or something was happening. I didn't know that it was, I'm not going to be in the band anymore. Um, and was it immediate? There was a situation where I kind of heard a rumor about it a while. It's kind of uncomfortable. I won't dig too deep into right. it, especially since like my relationship with the Dopepod guys is, is cool. You know, it was rough at first. And it was definitely like a lot of resentment and that's what I wanted how, to talk about. how can you do this to me kind of situation. Um, but yeah, it was like uh, we did a solid year uh, 2016 of touring um, as the band always did. I mean, right before I joined, it was like 150 shows a year. I don't think I ever did that, but I would be surprised if we ever did less than 120 or 100 plus shows a year. Which is a lot for a band. Sure, one in three-ish days. Yeah. And um, they, we did the summer shows, festivals, and we only had one more left, and that was Catskill Chill. And the band asked, was like, hey, let's have a meeting. Our, our bassist had called a meeting. Let's meet in New York. Let's talk about some things. And I sit down, we meet in, I forget what park, in Manhattan, in like the Midtown kind of area, and sit down, and it was kind of just like, okay, I'm just going to get into it, Uh, we're bringing Fro back. And I was kind of like, whoa, you know? I kind of went into this meeting thinking like, this band's going on a break or doing something, which ultimately now they're on a break, but um, I didn't... I didn't think it was that I was going to be out of the band, especially since I was always kind of vocal about like, hey, is everyone happy? Am I doing this thing? And everyone's like, you're doing great. Um, they, they obviously always hoped that it would be a core for you. Yeah, I mean, which also in a way is like, you know, a lot of people don't necessarily know, although I know that there's articles recently, especially with like the original trio right. coming back, but like that Mikey from Turquoise was the original drummer of the band. And... You know, it's just a, a tough situation. I thought that there was, like, you know, me and I won't say, you know, who, but, like, there was, like, some um, tension and negative energy kind of within the band and or a couple people or whatever the situation happens, is, you know? Yeah, I won't go into details because, like I said, it, it, it's ultimately it, it doesn't really matter right. anymore and things are cool with us. That's the most important thing, Absolutely. you know? 
Um, but it was tough. I was, as a working musician, uh, and not that, like, we were making a lot of money, but, like, we were comfortable, we were on a salary, and we got to do what we loved to do. Plus, like, we had a pretty big operation. We owned our own lights, all of our own microphones, and pretty much everything but the house sound system was on the road with us. So, you know, you've got a van and a massive trailer to haul all this stuff. guys on the road? And then nine people on the road. Uh, a tour manager, a couple crew people, a merch, and yeah. then Luke Stratton, who um, was, was or is um, front of house, all together, sound and lights, which is rare, yeah. but like he's incredible at both. He's actually right now on tour doing lights for Smashing Pumpkins, and I'm super oh, proud of him. Huge rooms that are going to. Yeah, huge. massive rooms. Um, so it was a big change, and I didn't know what to do. I, you know, I have an apartment with my girlfriend and you know how am I going to make a living doing this I would do some shows and continue being the working musician who doesn't really have a home but played with Rack for a minute right so that was when it happened I, I got you know essentially kicked out of or I got kicked out of Dopapod and it was kind of weird because Fro was doing stuff with Rack yeah right but then you know, Stoops and I have always been really close. We had our own little project, Bang Bang, together, and we've done various little side project things here and there. He was kind of like, oh, well, you're in Rack. It wasn't even like, uh, hey, do you want to do, do this? It was like, you're in Rack now. So, you know, and Rack doesn't play <coughs> too often, and now that I've also kind of been busy, they've been doing the Rack Plus Jay thing Lane. with Jay Lane, which is awesome. Yeah, Stoops was my um, Because, yeah, I mean, I can only imagine. I'm stoked and yeah. happy for them well just not not in the against playing with you just he was excited that jay would yeah be playing of course jay's yeah. a legend right. you know besides the rat dog grateful dead connection and primus right. you know like he was also charlie hunter's drummer yeah. in the early years like he's just he's the, the man um so i did that and some random things here and there and i was playing with uh this band from boston wobble sauce which i actually have a run of shows by the time this airs it'll be passed but in you know next week or a couple weeks and you know just doing what i can to just right. kind of keep it and at one point i was like okay well i'm not making much less money than i was with topapod and i'm kind of on the road Less, I have my own life. I'm different people around you, so it's like diff- not yeah. the same people every day, all day, every yeah. day. So you're seeing different faces, working with different folks. Practicing a lot of yeah. different music, which is great as a player. It can have its stressful moments at times, especially like you're an electronic drummer. Now you're a funk drummer. Like it's kind of, uh, yeah, it can be confusing on the brain and on the body. Like I tend to like set myself into like a zone of this is the groove that I'm feeling out. It, it could be weird going back and forth. Um, you know, I also started playing with Conspirator, which yeah. I was fortunate in Sonic Spank to do like a festival with them. And I th- actually thought I was going to have the gig for a second. And then KJ joined right. kind of full time, which was cool. You know, I love KJ's mentor, but it's kind of weird too. When you're like, I think I have this awesome gig with people I look up to right. so much and then all of a sudden you're like, oh, well, they're, they're giving it to your mentor. But, <laughs> but that's, yeah. you know, cool. And then uh, cut to like a year or so ago, they asked me to do it. And they don't really play often no. either. But, and I don't know, I, I'm, it's not like I'm the drummer of Conspirator it's by any means. Yeah. But A lot of people have been on that. 
Yeah, exactly. But it's nice to know that it's like, you know, I did two shows with them last summer, and then this summer we were supposed to do a festival that actually ended up getting canceled. But you know, I was going to be doing that with them, and so it, it's it's nice to know that you know I'm at least thought of as like a potential drummer for Conspirator when they yeah, do it. So, definitely. Um, so bringing it to the the present day. Yes. Um, first music, and then maybe other stuff. Tenish uh, fifteen minutes. Yes. Um, how far along into the Ghostlight thing was the project conceived? Like, how far along when you were asked to be involved? Were you there from its like idea level, or were there songs when you showed up? So, this is where like the concept of I've never started a band uh, ends. Ends. Yes. Yeah, I finally <laughs> am in the beginning phases of what it's like to start a band but obviously in a, a weird situation not bad in fact incredible but weird in the fact that like there's a lot of history within all of the players uh in the game you know yeah. and in this band uh so tommy had an idea of i want to have a band again because american babies is his thing um you know, Tom Hamilton's American Babies. Right. So it's a band, but like it's really his solo thing that he has full control over. He writes the music. You know, he kind of calls the shots. And not that he's that kind of person. But, you know, that's when it's you're responsible for this act, that's right. your job. Um, and J Rad's incredible. Right. He loves it. All, you know, obviously you can hear they have something really special. They do something unique yeah. with the Grateful Dead's music that. I feel like no band really the best does. Band playing Grateful Dead music, period. Agreed. You know that's my opinion, but that's just what it it's is. It's my opinion too. Nobody they, loves it. It might be yeah. better than any of the Dead yeah. associated. Yeah. That's just my opinion. Bands, but um, let us just think on Sunday night, one off. But that was pretty, yes. pretty epic too. But um, you're right. Like, but that's J Rad, and that's not Tom's music either. Yes. So he wanted a band where like everyone has an equal say in this thing. It's a collaboration and working on things. Um, and he found out I was moving to Philly and he had seen me, uh, in 2000, well, he had seen me a handful of times, you know, in this touring circuit, it's kind of a small incestuous. Yes. <laughs> um, and he liked what he saw, I guess, for, uh, to just kind of sum it up and yeah. not go on a, on a long rant. Um, and found out I was moving to Philly and thought this is great and felt like we would have a connection so he said next time you're in philly you know come by my studio and let's just talk so we talked about stuff and we talked a lot about 90s alternative rock like soundgarden and alice in chains yes and the concept of like where are you because we wanted to do something different we're a jam band in the sense that like we do a lot of improv in fact like not to shoot anyone down, but, like, we do maybe more improv and, like, uh, from the ground up improv right. than than most jam bands. Jam bands. Um, Which is saying something. Yeah, and it's <laughs> nothing against, but, like, there's no the formula of, like, like, a jazz approach of, like, right. here's the structure, we're going to solo around that structure. Right. Like, that doesn't exist. In fact, there is no anticipation the second you assume in Ghostlight, that's when things start to fall apart. You kind of just have to have an open ear and listen. 
So we were talking about that. I think he was just excited that I didn't immediately jump to like, well, Fish is my favorite band, even though Fish is one of my favorite right. bands and a huge influence. But I like a lot of music. I like the jam band scene because it's not here's our show and we're going to do this for the entire tour or here's how the song goes and that's the only way the song goes. Um, I like that aspect, but I really do love music of the 90s. Whether it's like hip-hop or even like the kind of cheesy and corny like dance music of the 90s and especially the alternative rock. Like anything that came out in 94. Downward Spiral, Nine Inch Nails, and... Dirt's 92. But around that time period, and, you know, um, Super Unknown, Soundgarden, that whole time period, I just discovered music for myself. I'm, like, maybe two years older than you. I'm 40, because I'm, like, you're saying the album, and I'm loving the album. Well, I'm 30. Soundgarden, it's bad. I'm 31. Oh, wow, so you're you're 90. But I got into that kind of stuff on... And Bad Motor Finger was my Soundgarden album. Okay, yeah. So that's a little bit before, because yeah. that's what eighty. No, no, that's ninety-two. Ninety-two. Okay. Yeah. Um, so this we, is what you're talking about with Tommy. So we're talking about you, this right. and the idea of like let's do let's have a band and let's try and do something different. Right. Not that we're against anything that any of these other bands are doing, but they're doing that. So let's try and do something different. And he had some songs in mind, so there kind of was something already presented at the table, and we were talking about, you know, you know, well, we were thinking maybe, you know, Holly Bowling will be in the band. Like, even though she's in San Francisco, like, she's a phenomenal player, and she's been looking to have a band of her own and do something different than just the Fish, Grateful Dead kind of thing that she became popular and known through. and then Raina Mullen was in American Babies, and Tom really loved her voice and her songwriting style. They have cool chemistry. And they, yeah, they have a great chemistry together. And he had mentioned, a, you know, I have maybe a couple bassists in mind, but really one stood out um, a bassist that he used to play with, um, with American Babies. Um, but Steve Lyons, who was the bassist in. Nico's Gun and also uh, Bodega, which as like a Philly guy you might know and some people yeah, might know. They but, played uh, Blockly before. Yeah, and Nick Bockrith was in the yeah. band. They were all childhood friends and Nick plays with Cage the Elephant now and gets to do all these really awesome things. And he thought he was perfect. And I knew of Bodega and Nico's Gun, but I didn't really know Steve as a player. Um, so that's where this all kind of started. I would say this was like June, uh, July of last year. So it's really only been like a year in the works and we didn't even meet as a band or play one note together until December when we met in Tommy's studio and started working on these songs that like we kind of had demos. Tommy and I and Raina were working on these songs in Tommy's home studio and kind of just developing the ideas a little bit more, but it was all really fresh. Um, and the fact that our first notes together as a band were like writing this album. Right. And we met for about five days um, every month. So December, then January, February, March right. of 2018. Uh, and then we announced the band, I think it was maybe 
February or or maybe March even. You announced the band, and then shortly thereafter, you announced a tour. Yes. And I was gonna want to parlay. I wanted to ask. Um, that had to be such a yin and yang because here you were like, you know, working hard, with the exception of Dopapod, bands that were struggling to make the money you needed yeah. to stay on the road. Totally. And then you book a tour with a brand new band, and yeah. it sells out before anyone's heard. A lot of shows sold out before anyone had really heard. Yeah, the first show anything. sold out. Yeah, and we intentionally there were shows in California all the way up through Terrapin and stuff. Yeah, I, well, Terrapin didn't sell out, but like was packed, and we did two nights there. Right. So to do two nights in, I think like a four hundred and fifty capacity, like to sell yeah. eight hundred tickets right. over two nights for a band that no one's ever heard of. You know, but San Diego was the good. first night. Right? San Diego was out. the first night sold out. L.A. second night sold out, and L.A. is kind of tough for the jam yeah. band scene. Shit. Lettuce so doesn't even sell out of yeah, it's tough. It was a small-ish yeah. room, but like the Mint's a great room. And great room to do two hundred and fifty tickets or yeah. whatever that place is is great. But just the fact that you, your rep and like the buzz and the hype, yeah, is so strong. And I mean, I didn't, I didn't put two and two together that Holly was in San Francisco, but yeah, just the thought of you guys in my mind being a Philly project, just because of Tommy and you, yes, there, to book a West Coast tour as the first crush, <laughs> yeah, it's just really remarkable. It was. Uh, it so was, was it like in the van going from show to show? Like, holy shit! Did last night happened, and then it happens again another night in another town. And I'm sure the shows were well all through the roof. So we're a Philly band, but like Steve doesn't live in Philly anymore. Right. He lives in L.A. Okay. And Holly's in San Francisco. So it's two thirds. You know. Here. Yeah, and Tommy was on tour with and doing some shows with J. Rad. Right. So. And they sell like crazy out west. Yeah. So, but it was me, Raina, and our tour manager, Lauren, that drove from Philly to uh, San Diego. With gear and all that? With gear and everything. And then we met uh, the day before tour. We did a rehearsal in San Diego. And then we just went for it. And going from show to show, it was really exciting and, and awesome. Look that, look that way on the internet. Yeah. I happen to be out of town during the Terrapin shows, or I would have been to one of them. Oh, nice. So, like, we, yeah, it was, like, all the way up the coast shows kind of, I feel like half the run sold out. Yeah. And most of the shows were pretty packed. Well attended. Yeah, very well attended. I don't think there was one show that was, like, lightly attended. Nor did, like, we were all kind of, like, we're a new band. We're happy if, you know, even though we have got these players within the band, so we're happy good. if some a couple dozen people come out to right. check out this new thing that they've never heard because we only released a jam from the studio we intentionally didn't want any of the music out there we wanted it really fresh and you know we were going to play these songs live but we really didn't want anyone to hear it unless they came to the show or when the album comes out they can get a sense of so what we've no been taping? doing oh we're all about taping okay. you can come and tape you can't get a direct board feed right. but you want to set up microphones like we're all about okay. sharing and doing you just didn't want to put out something have people have preconceived notions of what's going to happen and then you want to play it another way that night. Exactly. Because like, it's different every night. Yeah. And even the songs um, will evolve. There's no strict... Here's how you play it. Yeah, it's kind of like J-Rad, I think Tommy kind of... I don't know if he they figured this out through J-Rad or it's just something that they kind of follow and have all known before, but they follow a roadmap of Grateful Dead songs. But there is all this in-between space you can go wherever you want it doesn't matter all that you need to know is that eventually whenever we all decide 
that we've got verse 3 coming up. It's like the Dark Star Roadmap. Yes. There is no, like, there's anything goes, essentially, and take chances. We're in this to take chances. Yeah. I mean, if you're not willing to fall on your face and then get back up and do it, then, like, you're in it. It's not for you. Um, And I've just taken that approach a lot recently with anything I do. Uh, And it's just, it's been great. So we did that, and then we did a uh, northeast run, and then Midwest? Or maybe I have those backwards, but... You basically hit the coast to coast. Yeah. And And then you came to High Sierra. Yeah, we booked a whole festival season before we did the tour. I mean, or around the tour, no one had even heard us. So it was just, it's been a very exciting year. Great. And I, I can't even imagine what next year's going to be like. I mean, we were hoping to put out this album this year. Um, and at this point, it's, it's seeming like it's going to be more very beginning of, of 2019. But the fact that we had a very successful year and we, you know, we just announced. Did we just? Announce? Yeah, we, we just announced our uh, fall tour. Cool. And, you know, tickets and things are already going flying for that too and we're still two months out from the first show and there's uh people are hungry for it yeah i mean i noticed that at high sierra people came people came away from the performances really and high sierra is a tough crowd because they've been doing it 27 years or 28 years there yeah something Um, like that i'd be a new band there it's either 27 or 28 Um, it's close i remember thinking like wow this festival's almost yeah. as old as I am. I didn't right. even know. I, I first heard of it in the early 2000s. Yeah. So. I had my first high Sierra was 03. And by the way, what an incredible Event. festival. Yeah. Like, it might be a harsh crowd, but there's like a... I don't mean a harsh, I just mean, I don't want to misrepresent. Not a harsh yeah. crowd, just like, it's not their first rodeo. Like, no. you better bring your shit if you're going to play high Well, Sierra. yeah, it's Especially a very family-oriented f- yeah. festival, not only in the sense of like, the overall scene family, but like there's a lot of people who go there. It's like family vacation. Really they bring is. their kids, and yeah, it's just a really a cool, really cool atmosphere. I love that spot. So something you alluded to, uh, I kind of go hand in hand. It's probably we'll wrap, try to wrap it up closely yeah. here. Um, and again, I appreciate you giving us all this time. Oh, of course. I really think it, people will be engaged with the, the story and the stories yeah. you're told. Um, you've alluded to a few times about you moving away from the partying side of rock and roll. Yeah. You know? And also you've been very vocal on social media about uh, choosing to eat vegan. Yeah. So uh, let's talk about that, right? whether they're related or not, and, and in essence what is driving you to sort of make these wholesale changes in a lifestyle. They're pretty related. I guess they both have a, uh, a focus on health. At least at first that was a big thing for me. Like I quit... Not that I was ever, like, really crazy. Although some musicians probably have seen me in a light where they're like, that guy's crazy. <laughs> but not that I ever had, like, a, a, a real problem, if you will. Um, it never really got in the way of my work, you know, but or relationships or anything like that. But um, I started to realize that, like, I just didn't want to... I didn't want to consume and put all these toxic things into my body uh, you know like I still I still smoke a little weed here and there which I'm I don't mind being vocal about especially now it's like yeah. 2018 and it's kind of crazy that like it's still 
uh, federally illegal at least, but it seems to be making like a really big step in the right direction. Uh, Even alcohol, like I I really don't consume a lot. I'm kind of like my body after two drinks, three drinks, and that could be spread out over a long day will be like, okay, you're done. And it's not every day either. Um, But it was the other stuff that I was kind of like, I need to, it's time to cut this out. It's not good for me. Um, even if it wasn't so bad, uh, like I wasn't out of control or anything, I didn't like the fact that like, oh, well, I'm going to maybe have, I'm going to have fun this night, you know, not to encourage people, but like, that's why you do it to like let loose and have fun. And I guess party the night away. But, um, I didn't like how it made me feel days after depleting serotonin and just or you know just not feeling like myself right i wanted to be more in touch with myself and then i you know i'm engaged now but i well uh, thank you my fiance uh she's been you know kind of on and off but mostly vegetarian for a while and a couple of her family members went vegan and she's from Vermont and we were kind of like there's no way like no no cheese no ice cream thing like you know we we don't indulge and overeat or anything but like we have a bit of a sweet tooth and we love cheese and being in Vermont like there's just so much goodness of chocolate and all the things and uh we went there for a holiday and we were interested to just try things without like spending you hear like vegan can be very expensive and it's just hard to do and you're gonna miss out on all this delicious food and we tried it and we were like this is kind of cool let's let's cut out what we can and if there's other things that we like then we'll you know we can still indulge uh and then we found that there were a lot of things we liked, especially the home-cooked vegan things that we were doing. Like substituting out butter or whatever for vegan butter was like, it was no big deal. Um, and also just being more health conscious, not even just on like uh, animal uh, rights um, and then digging deeper into the environmental issues sure. and, and all and everything that goes with- it's all connected. Yeah, with agriculture and what is kind of in a way without being too preachy like is part of the problem of like what is kind of destroying our planet in in many ways and it's not a strict don't eat meat or slaughter animals anything like that it's more of like a sustainability thing for us that it's just it's not sustainable um at least in the amount that especially in america we consume a a massive amount of animal products and then abusing in a sense to to achieve that uh capitalism whatever you want to call it um that we started diving deeper into it and we kind of we're not super my fiance is a little more strict vegan uh i am especially on the road i try my best to stick with it it can be tough at times uh but i know plenty of musicians too that are have no problem being you know strict on the road being vegan um we also found that it it's not any more really expensive than what it was before. So we've kind of just loved the fact that, you know, we love all animals that we were kind of torn between like, well, what's the difference between a dog and a cat that people are fine with 
you know, domesticating and no right. one wants to hurt versus a, a cow or a pig, Chicken. which, you know, in some ways, especially with cows, like they're kind of just massive dogs. <laughs> sure. So um, we kind of were just, and we found out so much more information and there's just a lot of, you know, like a lot of things, there's a lot of misinformation. Um, but we, it just made us more aware of what we're putting into our bodies and not just cutting out animal products, but like realizing the ingredients that are going into everything, whether they're vegan or not. Um, cause there's a lot of vegan yeah. junk food, a lot. I'm but, speaking Alicia's language. She's a holistic nutritionist. Okay. I'm sure she's listening in the other room like, yes, <laughs> preach. Yeah. <laughs> and I don't like to be too breachy or anything, <laughs> but, um, cause that's another thing that has like, there's a, there's like this dark side of like if you're vegan you're an extremist and it's like I don't want to yeah, do that the same thing with Islam it's like yeah same it's not one that, extreme it's one to the next it's there are, you know there's yeah. a difference right like those are the one percent of people you hear about because they're on the news or they're making asses of themselves the extremists the other 99 percent of vegans are just like you yeah just normal dude making a choice and if you're interested in hearing more about it you're gonna share. That's kind of it, and like I, I will somewhat talk about it, and then I'll stop myself because it's like I don't want to come it. off that way. Or like someone will be eating food, and they might have chicken or right. meat in front of them of some sort, and they're like, "Well, what is it?" And it's like I don't really want to have this conversation yeah. while we're eating. Yeah. If you're really interested, that's then fine. that's fine, yeah. and we can talk now if you really want to. But we probably yeah. should save it for after dinner. Um, as an after dinner conversation but it's more of the same deal where like if you talk about anything that goes against someone's belief it's pretty uh, easy for them to feel like you're attacking them 2018 in a nutshell yes right there. and I don't I don't I'm not trying to come off and I don't want to I attack get, anyone I didn't get that from I mean the reason I'm asking you is because you posted about it and yeah. you had a couple of posts that got pretty colorful yeah and some even like bandmates that you're you know stuff like that not ghostlight bandmates, but other people who played music in, yeah. in the past up on there. And uh, I just thought it was really an interesting window into the dialogue of to vegan or not to vegan. Yeah. And the realities of a working musician on the road. And you said that it's not really an issue if you prioritize it. And it's not really that expensive if you know what you're buying and know what you're doing. Yeah. So uh, it's good to know that there's a path to that. I know, like, uh, for a long time, Benny Bloom from Lettuce was mm. vegan. And, Schmeens did a meat vegan tour, like one yeah. tour as a vegan. So, you know, you can definitely seek it out. And I'm I just all about think trying. it's positive. I'm not vegan, but I definitely have curbed my eating habits, Philadelphia notwithstanding. And that was Scotty Zwang on the Up for Life podcast, episode three. Scotty, we thank you for being such an open book. And giving uh, such an honest and earnest peek into your career and your life and your journey. And of course your art, your music, your playing, your influences. Really answered a lot of questions and gave a tremendous interview. So we are grateful for you and for the time spent and the conversation had. So big up, large up to Scotty Zwang of Ghostlight. Keep up with everything Ghostlight through their website and social media and so forth. They've got a lot happening moving forward. 
So for the Vibe Junkie Jam of the Week, uh, I had said in the introduction I was going to play some Jamiroquai, and uh, I had every intention of doing that, and then I kind of gave it some thought, and I said, well, I'll make it a little more special than just playing Jamiroquai, although I'd love to do that and probably will in the future. Uh, but last month, uh, at the North Coast Music Festival in Chicago, which is produced by Silver Rapper, a company that's behind Swanee Halloween as well, they also had Jamiroquai headlining the festival, and then they had uh, some affiliated after parties that incorporated members of Jamiroquai and members of Wolfpack um, on two different occasions, as a matter of fact, late night after the festival. So when the festival ended on Sunday, Jamiroquai played last, um, the debut of the Wolfpack uh, side project, the Fearless Flyers, took place in Chicago. Now, Fearless Flyers... Uh, Features Joe Dart from Wolfpack on bass, as well as Corey Wong from Wolfpack. Uh, and the drummer is none other than Nate Smith. And uh, Nate is really the G-Code personified. I mean, he's up there with just kick, snare, and hi-hat. Um, just making your head bob like emergency brakes. The dude is unreal. And... Unfortunately, I uh, did not attend this, though I had every intention of doing so. You know, life got in the way, and the universe made me pay dearly because um, an amazing collaboration took place when the Fearless Flyers played late night on Sunday. Um, the the singer of Jamiroquai, the founder, um, J.K., did the rare, ultra-rare, sit-in appearance with the Fearless Flyers. Totally improv, off the dome. Um, this came out in a Kengel hat, prancing the stage, and delivered uh, some ad-libs from an old, old jam he used to sing from time to time at Jamiroquai called Cannabliss. So basically he gets out there and uh, just starts crooning about how great weed is, which is nothing new if you've listened to Jamiroquai through the years, but still... Uh, it was pretty awesome to see. And then um, a fellow named Antoine, Stan Antoine Stanley, uh, who's a part of the Volpec contingent, uh, joined him on stage. He's a vocalist, Mr. Stanley. And the two of them sort of weave their way in and out of the classic jam, Sunny. Um, and if you watch the video, which you can, there's, there's some video that circulates. You could see Joe Dart just so in the pocket, it's, it, just visually and sonically. It's really incredible. So instead of just the straight Jamiroquai jam, I'm going to play footage from when JK took the stage with the Fearless Flyers in Chicago. And I'm just going to let it ride out. It's like seven minutes. Um, and if you want to tune out and get, you know, get on with the rest of your day, I understand. But if you want to just a glimpse of the magic um, that went down, then have a listen. So this will be the Vibe Junkie Jam of the Week. J.K. sitting in with the Fearless Flyers in Chicago. Um, and then I'll wrap it up at the end of that jam. And we'll see you next time. Uh, well, first, hopefully we'll see a bunch of you at Swanee Halloween. And maybe we'll see some crazy collaborations like this one down on the banks of the Swanee River. But uh, we'll, the Up for Life podcast will see you in two weeks with none other than uh, Jembe Fola extraordinaire Weedy Brahma. 
You've been listening to the Up for Life podcast with B. Getz.
Let me get the fuck out of here now.